there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and I'm happy to be talking to South Africa today. I, I don't know if I've had, a, okay, maybe I've had a few South African guests, but today I'm very excited to welcome this guest. He is a descendant of the Moyo, which means heart and soul, and in Lovu, which means elephant clans. He has continued to marvel and draw strength from their combined histories and diversities. He is a writer, author, researcher, and thought leader with keen interest in questions of African resources, democracy, and governance. He has so far championed African discourse on philanthropy, contributed to growth of many African civil society formations, and has taken part in most of the continental processes of development and governance. Dr. Bekinkosi Moyo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Just to say that I live in South Africa. I'm very much uh, a resident here, but originally I'm from Zimbabwe, so I'm Zimbabwean by birth and descent. Okay, wonderful. And so the two the two names, what language is that? Uh, so so that's Ndebele, both Bekinkos and Moyo, that's Ndebele. Uh-huh. Uh, but they mean the same thing in uh, Zulu, uh, which is found in South Africa. So my name is made up of a, a verb and a noun. Okay. So Ega means look at, uh-huh. uh, literally look at, and then Nkosi is uh, a king. And so depending on, you know, your orientation, if you are religious, it might mean look up to the Lord, basically. But if you traditional, it means, you know, look look at the king or look up to the king. And, you know, our societies are designed in such a way that there are kingdoms and, you know, there's kingship and a king is a very, very important uh, institution yes. uh, in, in people of my, uh, yeah, my setting. So the Zulu, uh, who are the, foundation for the Ndebele, king is a, is a very, very big institution. So if you traditional, it means you you always have to look up to the king because that's where you get direction from. Mm-hmm. And if you are religious, it also means that you, you always get your strength, your direction, your protection from the Lord, which is the, the king in Christian terms. Mm-hmm. So growing up and even as adult, how did that impact how you um, saw yourself and see yourself. Yeah, so you know, names have uh, names have a certain impact, and uh, they at times tend to shape the destiny of an individual. Mm-hmm. And so, growing up, whether it was because of the name or because of my, you know, contextual setting, I used to go to church a lot. And I, in fact, those that know me know that I even attempted becoming a Roman Catholic priest. Oh wow. Uh I went as far as doing uh I think first year theology because I really believed that I had a calling to become a priest and, and true to my name that would have really meant that I'm looking up to a calling by uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, uh I then did not become a Catholic priest, but I became a different priest, uh, which is what I do now in my on my day-to-day work. Uh I still feel like I'm doing something which was a calling, but it didn't have to become a Catholic priest. So that's one impact that I think the name itself could have had. I mean, but obviously that name came from my parents Mm -hmm. and I'm sure my parents actually wanted me to live up to that name. And my mother was very, very religious. And Mm -hmm. so she is the one that was behind 
me going to church and I, in fact uh, when i look when i look uh, back and in hindsight i realize i didn't want to become a priest myself my mother wanted me to become a priest okay um, so, <laughs> so, so so i think that's you know one way in which you could explain the impact that my name has had but i i, I also i'm not religious uh, and that's an irony because i wanted to become a priest i'm more uh, spiritual mm-hmm. And so I really I do believe that there's a superior spirit, there's a superior being mm-hmm. uh, that that I look up to, guys, my work and protects what I what I do. And so I think every one of us has that particular being that you look up to, and you you you, you know you wake up and and thank that being that you are alive. You do your daily chores, and at the end of the day, you look up to that being and thank that being for protection and for guidance and for blessings so that's in a, in many ways what my name would symbolize the moyo is more moyo means uh, a heart or a soul in my mm-hmm. language and i think you know other languages like swahili might have something similar it's, it's so it's, it's the heart it's the soul it's really like you know for, so for me it symbolizes uh, fulfillment it symbolizes you know the level at which when i do things i feel I'm fulfilled and I oh I need to go for fulfillment. And that's what the moyo for me symbolizes. And so when you look at then the Nlovu, which is my my maternal side of things, which is the elephant, and you look at the the moyo, which is the heart uh, or the soul, for me those two combinations are just magical. Yes, yes. Elephants are magical beasts. Indeed, yeah. just yeah. to the ex- yeah, and I think we we know so little, but we so much about them. But they're they're very magical. So you've covered my first question, which is where are you from? So you're from Zimbabwe. Um, where are you local? You're in South Africa. Where in South Africa are you? Uh, so I live in Pretoria, but as you know, I uh, I, I I run a center uh, at West University, and that is mm-hmm. in Johannesburg, which is really not that far from Pretoria. So. Under normal circumstances, I drive there every day, but because of COVID, we've, we've all been working from home. That's something also that is a, a theme that I've kind of lived uh, by and I've followed over years, way before COVID, mm-hmm. just trying to create enough time for flexible working time for myself uh, and for the people that I've worked with. And um, in hindsight, again, I realized that when we started doing that, it was for practical reasons. But actually, it helped us to prepare for what was to eventually happen. Right, right. And and I think it's kind of the way of the world now is everyone really is more comfortable and able as, you know, as we are to to be yeah. these remote yeah. workers and remote communicators. OK, so speaking of how you work, what is your craft? What would you describe your craft as? So it's always difficult to describe what I really do, uh, even though I know what I do. So, you know, in technical terms, I'm currently an academic, right? So I teach, mm-hmm. I research, uh, but I also, you know, edit uh, uh, a journal, uh, I write, uh, and I also lead a center. So that's from a technical point of view. But honestly, if you really asked me, why am I doing this? Um, who am I? I would go back to what I said in the beginning that I think that all of us are called to do different things. And we only Mm -hmm. realize that uh, when we reach our 40s, going to our 50s, we begin to realize that what we are doing uh, is actually a purpose. And you 
you want to then maximize whatever time uh, of your life is left to leave behind something that either your children, grandchildren, the communities that you might have been associated with can always look back and say, this is why this person was here. And so it's difficult for me to always describe myself in terms of what I do from a technical point of view. But I always want to look back and say, why would I have been created differently? I'm not the same as you or the person next to me. What is my purpose here? I didn't know what my purpose was up until I reached my my 40s. And uh, after my 40s, I began, I began chasing what I realized made me happy and uh, I would go to bed feeling fulfilled. Um, and it's not really financial at all. It's not material at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that you begin thinking about as you count downwards, you know? So when you are, when you are, when you are going to your 40s, you are counting upwards. You are excited about the mm-hmm. next year, the next year. <laughs> but after, after the 40s, I mean, this is, this is just specific to me. Sure. You start, you start getting serious about life and saying, okay, do I have another 40 years here? Yeah. Uh, probably not, especially if you look at the lifespan for most people and so you know you begin living each and every day as if it's your last and you're thinking about what is it that people remember me for Um, Mm -hmm. and you know all the material things kind of just disappear and you start focusing on substantive uh, issues that really 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 matter and so Mm -hmm. that's probably a long way for me to say to you what I'm doing every day from a technical term I'm trying to make sure that it it really has resonance with my purpose now. Okay, got it. I want to come back to that a little bit, but so how did you so all this this journey to 40 until you when you realize your passion, how did you come to be living and working and playing where you currently live? You mean you mean like how did I end up living in South Africa? That's number one. Yeah. Number two, how did I end up in the philanthropy space? How did you come to be living in South Africa in the philanthropy space? Okay, so firstly, let's deal with how did I end up in South Africa? So it's a very classic thing that almost every person will say it happened to them. After my first degree, or rather my my honors degree in Zimbabwe, I was looking at opportunities to better myself. And uh, South Africa had the Mm -hmm. best universities close by. And so I came here to do my master's degree. And while I was doing my master's degree, I started thinking about what's next. So I went on to do my PhD here. And I think it was during that period that uh, when I was doing my PhD that I met my partner, currently my wife. Um, and uh, the the rest is history. So I had to build a family here. I had to, I had to work here. Uh, and that's how I ended up here. Okay. Um, but how did I end up in philanthropy? That's a different story. It was an, it was an accidental encounter. Okay. Um, I was doing my PhD then. I happened to, uh, I happened at that, so I was just answering my call. I happened at that time okay. to be studying, you know, uh, civil society, associational life. And every time I would uh, read around, I would come across certain names like Alan Fowler, uh, you know, Michael Edwards, um, uh, among others. Um, and I started looking for them online and I, ended up discovering that Alan Fowler was, uh, you know, associated with an organization called the International Society for Third Sector Research, ISTR. And uh, the more I I read about him, uh, the more it took me to ISTR. And ISTR was almost a platform for major academics that I was using for my work. 
And uh, when I finally got hold of him, he uh, he suggested that uh, for my work, I would benefit from you know joining ISTR. And at that point, I think he was the president of the association, president of ISTR. And I joined. And then, you know, I think around 2001 or 2002, ISTR at this conference in Cape Town. And so I had my paper accepted for presentation. I went to present. I then happened to be on a panel with uh, Professor Kathleen McCarthy from the City University of New York. Uh, she, she runs a center on philanthropy and civil society. So she presented, I presented, but, you know, immediately I could tell that we we're talking about the same thing, but using different terminologies. And so uh, after the panel, I, I approached her and talked to her about it and said, uh, you know, my topic is on the following issues. This is how uh, I'm approaching it. And as you heard, I think we are talking about the same thing, but using different ways. And um, obviously her response was, I get this all the time because I, I lead a center on philanthropy and wherever I go to the global south, uh, I get this. And so she then offered me an opportunity to join them if I'm interested because she ran a fellowship uh, for people from all over the world mm-hmm. who were interested in studying philanthropy, in particular community foundations. And so, you know, it was from that perspective that I, I applied, uh, I was accepted, and then I attended that fellowship in 2003. Uh, and that was the beginning of me changing a lot of what I was studying for my PhD, beginning to focus a lot on philanthropy. Um, and the, the rest is history, as they say. So I ended up then, you know, just studying philanthropy. My PhD ended up focusing on philanthropic foundations working in, in Southern Africa. You know, my first job was, uh, you know, we're working with one of the NGOs in South Africa. But quickly I got to be approached by the Ford Foundation Southern Africa to do a paper on uh, philanthropy in Southern Africa which was presented uh, in 2004 in Uganda, Ginger. And in that, that conference was the beginning of uh, consultations around what was called the Special Initiative for Africa, which later became Trust Africa. Hmm. And the, the, the founders of Trust Africa were at that meeting. So they were interested in what I was presenting. And they said to me, you know, we would be coming back to approach you uh, once we are ready, uh, because we think that we need people like yourselves and others to help us build this institution, but also to promote philanthropy in Africa. And true to their word, uh, I think a year or so down the line, I got a call and they uh, advertised a position at Trust Africa for a programs director. I applied, I didn't get the job, but for some strange reason, when I went to the interview in Dakar, after the interview, uh, Akwasi Edu, a very good friend and now a mentor to me, was the founding director for Trust Africa. After the interview, I thought, you know, this is done. I didn't make it. He then invited me that evening for for dinner. And I went for dinner and he told me, you know, you didn't make it, but the panel is so interested in you. So we are not going to give you this position, but would you consider if we gave you a different position? And that was to be a research fellow. And so I joined Trust Africa in 2007 as a research fellow. And it was during that time that I started developing a program on philanthropy for Trust Africa. And that led to a book that we did uh, on philanthropy called Giving to Help, Helping to Give. Uh, it then also led to us you know, setting up institutions like the Africa Grandmakers Network, which became the Africa Philanthropy Network, and so forth and so on. And so 
I mean, so that's in a long way how I got into philanthropy. And uh, here we are now with the center that uh, I'm running. What is the name of the center? So our center is African, is Center on African Philanthropy and Social Investment, CAPSI in short. Mm-hmm. And that's at Vets. Yeah, it's at Vets Business School, yeah. Right, right, right. Okay. And so philanthropy in Africa is a big topic because what traditionally people think about in philanthropy is not that there's philanthropy sourced in Africa as much as it is a recipient of philanthropic proceeds. And so in your work at your center, you are shaping the minds of young people on how philanthropy works and how how to systemize it into, you know, I guess the African ethic. So what are some of the key key themes and key concepts that you try to impart to your students as they move into this field of philanthropy as a kind of burgeoning quote unquote industry in Africa? Yeah. So so I think it's important for us to contextualize even our our modules and our training of students, which is that we 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 are approaching philanthropy from the perspective that the the narrative that existed and potentially is still around. Uh, like you say, it was uh, one which defined philanthropy firstly in monetary terms, but secondly, which uh, positioned Africa as a recipient in terms of uh, you know uh, the philanthropic processes. And we want to change that because we know that philanthropy, even if we defined it in the current uh, formulation, which is love for humanity, is experienced differently by different communities in different contexts and different geographies. Mm -hmm. So we can't have a situation where African philanthropy is positioned way below and there's a hierarchy of philanthropies. And, you know, top is American philanthropy followed by, let's say, European philanthropy and others. And then down there is African philanthropy. That's the narrative that has always been out there. We want to change that because that's not true. Philanthropy is is universal and African philanthropy shares in that universality of philanthropies. Mm -hmm. It's just different, but it's not inferior or superior to other forms of philanthropy. So that's one area in which we want to change the narrative. And we can only do so if we do research on African philanthropy, write it from the African perspectives and African frameworks, tell our own stories. We can also change the narrative by training our own uh, and developing our own experts in the field. Uh, And that's why we have a huge program on PhDs, masters, but also short courses as well. Because if we don't develop our own experts, we'll continue depending on others to define the story and write the story for us. Uh, But I think the third component is that, you know, there's always been practice of philanthropy at family level, in communities, nationally, continentally, and otherwise. So we want to, in, in a way, excavate, extract some of those stories from the past so that we can showcase how philanthropy uh, used to be expressed prior to colonization, during mm-hmm. colonialism, and post the colonial period. Mm-hmm. Because in each and, and every stage of uh, those processes, philanthropy was always present, but it was affected by those different processes, including today it's affected by globalization, uh, it's, it's affected by you know forms of migration and, and so forth and so on. So, but the fact of the matter is that philanthropy is still present. And so I think if you approach it from that perspective, then 
you will understand that when we then develop programs on philanthropy, we are looking at firstly changing the narrative. We also want to develop material that we can use for teaching. Mm -hmm. So we do lots of research, we do lots of case studies from an African perspective by African philanthropists of different forms, individual, community philanthropy, institutional philanthropy, like your foundations, among others, your high net worth individuals, we're starting all of them because they are all different parts of, of, of what philanthropy looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, but what are, we, what are we teaching? We are teaching, obviously, from an, a critical, analytical point of view. Our pedagogy involves uh, not just, you know, you know, a lecturer standing there and teaching, but we also engage our students to also, you know, have experiential learning, uh, but also to, 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 to be involved in what happens in day-to-day you know, context. So uh, some of the modules that we are offering right across the board is uh, le leading uh, leading philanthropic institutions. Uh, one of the key areas that became very, very necessary during this period of the pandemic is uh, concepts around liquid leadership. How do you lead? How do you lead during times of uncertainty, during times of uh, instability? And this crisis was so pertinent for us in terms of teaching about philanthropy, because philanthropy is always considered to be uh, risk-taking, it's considered to be flexible, it's considered to be agile, and, and all of those things. And that's exactly what is required during this moment in time. So how do you lead philanthropic institutions now? But we also know that uh, you know philanthropy uh, entails resources, uh, different forms of resources, financial, human, political, and otherwise. How do you manage those resources? So we have a module that focuses on management of resources, right? Mm -hmm. from, from their mobilization to management to reporting. Uh, and the nonprofit sector in Africa as elsewhere depends a lot on philanthropy. But mm -hmm. you know, for that for that relationship to remain mutual and sustainable, the nonprofit sector has to also exercise a lot of accountability. Uh, measures, some of which include, you know, reporting, uh, good budget management, financial management, uh, and basically how do you utilize these resources effectively, uh, efficiently, and in a cost-effective manner. So we teach that. There's also issues around the the growth in uh, in wealth in Africa, you know, the growth of high net worth individuals, the middle class, and the expectation for them to give back to society. Uh, so how do you advise wealth? So, so, so wealth advisory is one of the modules that we are focusing on. So we know this is a, this is a trend uh, everywhere, but we just don't want our philanthropists to just mimic what the West is doing. Mm -hmm. so, so how do we do it in, in an African context where their, 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 their advisory should really take them back to communities and the sensitivities at community level? Mm -hmm. How do you work with communities? We have, a, we have a module that focuses on working with communities. How do you work with communities? Normally, we parachute into communities with our solutions, and then we take off again. But that's not how communities are structured. That's not how communities uh, work. Communities understand you know, the glue, the social capital that binds and bridges uh, between them and their issues. So how do you come in as a philanthropy uh, recognize the the assets and the philanthropy that is already in place and and complement that which is already there as opposed to coming in and bringing in new solutions totally alien to to communities 
So that module on working with communities is very, very important because it is the foundation of development, basically. If you don't understand the values, the cultures, the sensitivities of communities, it doesn't matter how much money you bring in. It's not going to make any difference. Right. So we also have other modules around corporate social responsibility. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. you know, um, what, 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 what is the role of, uh, of business in society? That's really the, what the module is about. I mean, you know the history of corporate social responsibility, how it has evolved over time to probably the 2011, um, you know, seminal article that was produced by the Harvard professors on on shared value. And so that's the kind of, you know, we have that module taking people from that evolution, but also, you know, uh, having debates around uh, issues of stakeholder engagement versus shareholder engagement and now to shared value. So we, we take people through through that and help corporates to actually, you know, make meaningful contribution back to society. We are located at a business school. And so, you know, we produce leaders. Mm -hmm. What kind of leaders are we producing? Uh, What kind of leaders are we sculpting for society? And philanthropy is is a paradigm for transformational ethical kind of leaders. And so we have a module on, on philanthropy and ethics. So, so there are several modules, but all of them, they are really uh, designed to firstly build the discipline, which hasn't been built in Africa, but elsewhere you, you already have a discipline. Mm-hmm. But secondly, to build a knowledge base for teaching purposes, but also for purposes of interpreting the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, you know, to continually have this connection between practice and theory. And so we are, we, we are really keen on making sure that what, we, what we, we, we teach, what we research informs practice. But at the same time, we want practice to actually inform what we are teaching and what we are theorizing. So that, that relationship between practice and theory uh, is something that we as the center want to try and uh, make it a reality. And so you will see that even, you know, some of our lecturers are actually people who are practitioners. And so we bring them in to bring that practitioner perspective. Our case studies are designed to really, really be built on what's happening in, uh, in the workspace, in the foundation space, uh, in the NGO space. And that helps students to really get a sense of what's happening out there. We have a journal that we, we launched last year. It's a combination of research articles and what we call field notes. And field notes are just reflections by practitioners on what's happening out there. What is the name of the journal? It's the International Review on Philanthropy and Social Investment. Okay, good. We'll have that in the, the show notes. Yeah, it's actually open access. And so, you know, we, we, want, to, we want to have it as accessible uh, widely enough as possible mm-hmm. because it's an intervention from our side. Um, if you know, it's very difficult for African scholars to publish in, in international journals, mm-hmm. partly because of the writing styles, but there's also uh, the politics of publishing. Um, right. You know, those that are, that are well-resourced, especially in the North, they do have the resources to conduct research, go to field work, and, 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 and really be in a position to publish. Um, and you compare that with most African uh, researchers and academics, they really don't have resources at their disposal to even go to the field. Mm-hmm. And so from our end, part of what we wanted to do with the journal is to create a platform for, for the voices from the South. But we also didn't want to make it simply an African publication, which is why it's international. We want people to publish 
from anywhere in the world, even though we would prefer to have most of the articles coming from Africa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice, nice. So I want to talk more about the grassroots side of philanthropy and how those who are recipients or those who are um, stakeholders, I want to say value, but not necessarily value, but just understand it. Because what it sounds to me like in a lot of ways is that the vocabulary that is used on the academic side and the corporate side is not necessarily what is understood by the people who are in receipt of philanthropic because, you know, people see their church as the same kind of resource that many people see philanthropic funds from. And churches are often recipients of philanthropic funds. So where I'm going with that is the idea of accountability. So the accountability, not only on those who are implementing and using the resources for philanthropics um, uses, but is there an accountability that those who are receiving philanthropy need to have to the organizations in order to better value it or to understand exactly what that impact is and to be able to quote unquote pay it forward. So in other words, if I if I understand you very well, you are saying there seems to be a disconnect in terms of technology between communities and academic people like myself and others. And mm-hmm. uh, with that in mind, uh, is there accountability uh, for those that receive to those that give so that they can be in a way encouraged to continue sure you know, exactly paying mm-hmm. and, and and okay so yeah i mean to to begin with there is always a challenge with the term philanthropy and uh, you know in my writings and i think those of others we have made that point that uh, the terminology is actually something that is foreign to most people in the in the continent Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have tended to we have tended to replace it with other terms like uh, helping, giving, uh, solidarity. Mm. In Southern Africa, there's a whole concept of Ubuntu, which means you are because I am. My life is interdependent on yours, and you know. So Desmond Tutu and others really are the promoters of that uh, kind of philosophy. I think that if you went to other parts of the continent, they will have different names and different concepts yeah. that would be closer to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so, so so we don't have to be stuck with the word philanthropy. When we are talking to our communities, we can always switch it around and use that, those words which, which they are familiar with and give examples that are very close to, to, to home. So I've always said that uh, for me, philanthropy is a, uh, is a way of life. Philanthropy is part and parcel of who I am. And it's it's actually part and parcel of who everyone is. And so in our context in Africa, you are both a philanthropist and a recipient of philanthropy. So you are are a philanthropist. Well, at birth, you are already a philanthropist. Um, You are a philanthropist during the time of your life. Uh, You are a philanthropist for most, I mean, for everyone, but Generally, for most people, you are even the greatest philanthropist at death, right? Uh, mm. But you are, but you are also a recipient of philanthropy before you are born. Your parents start receiving all sorts of gifts before you are born in anticipation of your birth. You know, the naming ceremony in most cultures is is was one one magnificent and magical, uh, you know, showcasing of philanthropy. Yeah. Depending on what you do, your circumstances, you receive all sorts of help uh, growing up till today. Some of us went to school not because we could afford, but somebody 
uh, invested in our education. You know, some, some of our families were fed by either neighbors or communities. Uh, those that are in farming communities, if you don't have the equipment or the necessary tools for farming, communities would come together, you know, just organize a day where they just come and farm your field. Uh, they don't anticipate you to pay them, but it's just help. They do what we could call a cooperative. They come and just farm. During harvest times, something similar. So there are several examples from across the continent that you can look at, and all those are an illustration of what philanthropy is. And built in that uh, accountability mechanisms, right? So if you if you take into account what happens uh, when somebody dies in a family, the community always mobilizes resources, uh, mm-hmm. financial, in-kind, uh, but also they come in, in large numbers to just spend time with the, with the family that is mourning, right? That's a, that's a mechanism of an accountability mechanism of some sort. I've never heard of money or goods that go missing at a funeral simply because there's an inbuilt mechanism on how to manage those resources. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you might be the richest man or the richest woman in the community. You don't just write checks and not be part of the funeral proceedings. You have to attend. Mm-hmm. If you don't, and and they then send you, a, everyone reciprocates and sends you checks and you are left alone to bury your beloved one. That's almost something that is unheard of. So there's no, there's no constitution, there are no rules that are written, but we all know that even the rich cannot just buy their way out of it. They have to give the money, but they have to also attend and be part of the funeral. So that's an accountability mechanism. It goes both way. It goes both way for those who are receiving and those who are actually giving. So why am I using this example? I'm using this example because even when it comes to institutional forms of philanthropy where a high net worth individual, for example, let's say institutions like the Dangote Foundation, Tony Elumelu, the Bill and Melinda Gates, the Fund Foundation, if they give funding to institutions or to communities or to associations, the accountability is not just by communities to them on how they are spending the money or the resources. There's also accountability by the, the, by the philanthropists to the communities that they are giving, right? They have to also account. Why are they giving them? What do they want from them? Uh, what, what are the kind of results that should come out of that? Mm-hmm. What is their responsibility uh, beyond giving the, the, the money, beyond giving grants? What, what is it that they've built into it that will also make sure that they are not just creating uh, dependency on them by communities? And when they decide to exit, what is their exit strategy? So there are all sorts of accountability mechanisms. What is the agenda that uh, needs to be taken into account? So accountability is both ways. If, if, if yeah. it's just one way, then, then, then that's a philanthropy that kills. And I don't know if you are familiar with this Tangarembo's book, Nervous Conditions. And Nervous Conditions talks about this uh, uncle who is um, in many ways trying to help his brother. But in, in trying to help his brother, he only chooses to support you know, the male child at the expense of a female child. And uh, in the process... Uh, instead of he thinks he's helping the brother, but actually he's destroying the brother, he's destroying the family because when that male child dies, he has no choice now but to support the female child because that's the only child left. And already mm-hmm. the you know the foundation is wrong 
and uh, we have already created conflicts, tensions, and all of that in the family. So there's philanthropy that kills. And, and if we don't build accountability mechanisms, then we will find that most of our philanthropy will be killing our communities. Right. Thank you for that. That was very well, concisely um, <laughs> put together. So let's talk about Glocal Speak. So I have this question where we want to hear what you hear. So I asked my guests to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as Glocal Speak. There are several, but I'm just thinking right now uh, what would be that phrase that normally comes to my mind every day. I mean, of late, I've been doing some work on, uh, on the state of civil society uh, in Africa and this capacity to scale up. Uh, in fact, coincidentally, we launched a report yesterday, uh, which was, which was uh, commissioned by uh, the Vodafone Foundation, Safaricom, and Vodacom Foundation. Um, so Clearview uh, and, uh, and, and my institution, CAPSI, uh, and a number of other researchers from the continent. We did uh, that report. Uh, it was launched yesterday. Uh, it's looking at, uh, you know, the the ability of civil society to capacitate itself and, uh, and 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 scale up. But it's looking at barriers. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, if I think about that uh, kind of work. So there are a couple of phrases. So one is capability and capacity development, mm-hmm. um, and these are two terms that are used almost every day in, in our spaces in civil society. One uh, is, 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 is ways to, to strengthen, you know, uh, civil society to be, to be part of development in the continent. And, uh, and we, have, we have progressive institutions that, you know, build the capacity, but also look at the capability of these institutions, especially local institutions, to be able to be conduits of development. But the phrase, the, the words are also used in many ways to disempower local institutions because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, more often you, you hear, you don't have the capacity to absorb resources, you don't have the capacity to, to implement, you don't have the capacity to do that. And that, that is used to justify, you know, resourcing northern-based institutions to do work in Africa. And when they come to Africa, they then commission you know, the local institutions that in the first place were accused of not having the capacity to do the work. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so those are double-edged swords, basically those two words. So that's, the other is, you know, localization um, mm. and domestication. Um, again, localization and domestication sounds like very good words. And I think these days you've probably heard of this shift the power movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really, really talking about you know, we are addressing the legacy of the past, you know, where uh, a lot of resources were located in the north, and that's partly due to the colonial past, racism, and among other forms of discrimination and inclusion. I mean, uh, 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 exclusion. And so we are shifting power to, to the south, and that's, you know, the narrative, and that there's, there's a movement that is championing that, and uh, we support it. But the challenge, though, is that uh, a lot of international organizations have actually moved to African cities and they've localized in Africa, uh, registered in Africa, domiciled in Africa, recruited African experts like myself and others. In the process, thus weakening local institutions. Mm. 
partly because they cannot compete at the same level with these institutions that are now African, but they've got a huge infrastructure uh, behind them. Yes. Uh, secondly, you know, we know all of us, uh, we end up in these international institutions because from a, uh, how can I put it? Uh, yes. So just from an existential point of view, they, they pay more, they offer more mm -hmm. uh, security than local institutions. And so, you know, most of us end up in these international institutions. And so basically we are depleting the talent for local uh, institutions. So on the one hand, you hear of, of domestication, uh, localization, uh, shift the power. And, and that might sound really, really good because it means we are saying decisions must be in the South, decisions must be uh, located at the local level, power must be held by myself, Peggy and others like me. But how 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 realistic is that and how feasible is, is that, especially if we operate in a system that still uh, favors, you know, international organizations, even though they've localized in the South. So that's a, a, an ongoing debate and an ongoing issue that we have to deal with ourselves uh, here. Right. So I think that's really like another phrase. And then the final one, I mean, there are several barriers and these barriers could be international you know, geopolitical considerations are a big barrier to development in the continent. You, 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 you see, you, if you follow the money, you will see that uh, it's linked to geopolitical considerations. Yes. Uh, there are international uh, factors uh, uh, such as, you know, what I just described now, how donors fund, where they fund, who they prefer, the instruments that they use, among others. But there are also local barriers. I mean, the legal environment under which, you know, most institutions operate uh, is to a large extent dependent on the political configuration of a country. Uh, so you, you, you see different countries have put in place different legal frameworks to basically control institutions like civil society, philanthropic organizations, the private sector, among others. So the extent to which, you know, there's freedom of movement, of assembly, of association, uh, that all goes to be dependent on the kind of uh, regime that you have in place. So there are those inter internal local barriers, uh, but then there are organizational barriers. Uh, some of them have to do with the capacity, like we said, others have to do with leadership, others have to do with governance, uh, others have to do with systems. Uh, and during this time, we noticed how systems and technology became a huge barrier or an asset for an organization to pivot to new ways of working. So right. those will be some of the things that I think concern all of us and the phrases that we constantly use. I mean, pivoting, uh, you are on mute now, you know, those things are, <laughs> uh, you know, you're on mute, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, you're on mute is a very interesting phrase. It's not just, it's not just, uh, about Zoom and uh, and whatever, it's, it's not technological only. It's also about your voice, right? Yes. It's also about yes. Your voice in the international system. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, speaking of of that, I have this mindset hack question. So, you know, there's these. You talk about all these ways of thinking, and so I like to ask, what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So, this is one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. Okay. So, basically, what is it that Kicks my mind into, yes. into the zone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So, yeah. So there are a couple of things, but the first one is uh, growing up. I never used to to like uh, 
jogging and running. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do karate um, a lot. And, uh, and karate taught me five maxims, which was uh, mm-hmm. character, etiquette, effort, discipline, self-control, you know. And, and, I think, and I think that has always occupied me and uh, kind of shaped the kind of a person that I am. And so even my mind has to almost follows those five maxims in whatever I do, my mind gets to be aligned around that. But of late, I've kind of gotten into this uh, jogging um, okay. a lot. If I don't jog, my day looks sounds and looks a bit weird, and I my I'm, my mind is not really kicked into into action. So it's something that I discovered. Well, I didn't. I at school I hated cross country. You know, like long distance. Um, I wasn't even good at uh, sprint. So I really hated running and jogging. But as from 2016, thereabout, I started, you know, doing just two kilometers here, one kilometer there. And then I discovered that I actually could do five kilometers. I could do 10, I could do 15, I could do 21. And I haven't stopped. So I just love conquering things. I just love conquering distance. Nice. Yeah. And so once I do that, once I do that, my mind just goes in its own. Yes. The meditation. I absolutely agree. Yeah. That's been, I, I've been a runner for most of my life. So um, I've been nursing a little bit of runner's knees. So I'm slowly making my way back to the regular runs. And I, I, I absolutely agree. Like the, the exhilaration of getting the mind in the zone on a run is yeah. Is something that's great. But I also use it now. I also use it now to, to also, you know, I mean, I'm a father, so I, I also use it now to, to kind of. It's not really training, but it's shaping my kids around it. So, I use it to, 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 to teach certain values. So, mm. one of the values that I used to do to teach them is patience mm. and uh, and resilience. So, if we agree that we are going to do two kilometers. We have to we have to do two kilometers unless it's a matter of life and death that forces us to stop. We have to do two kilometers, and the reason why I insist on that is because I want them to realize that if you put your mind on something, don't stop simply because you feel tired. Right? Push yourself until you reach the end because one day you'll be in a position where you have no choice but to finish the two kilometers. Mm-hmm. And if you have never tested yourself, you are going to struggle when that happens. Right? And that could be in a project management perspective. It could be in, in writing an exam. It could be your career. It could be your, you know, your purpose in life. You just have to be resilient and you just have to be patient. So you, you are not going to just sprint and get two kilometers just like that. It will take you to be patient and you know cover the ground. That's what is important. So. So that's that's very important. I think I think the other thing that I I, I could tell you that also like enlightens my mind is is, is gardening. Uh, gardening, yes. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So 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 I spend a lot of time, um, and I dare say I I spend a lot of money on the on the garden. Uh, yeah. Because because I also it also it also has taught me a number of lessons around project management. So. I, I know each and every plant, every tree that I have in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of them, I planted them myself. So I saw them from the day I planted to where they are today. 
It's almost like I have a personal relationship with each and every tree and every plant in the house. So if if I fail to to do, let's say I plant something and it struggles to grow, I make it my mission to understand why. And until I get it right, I don't stop. So that's another side that if I'm not doing my usual work, I'm not joking, I would find myself, you know, almost, yeah, it's almost like I naturally find myself in the garden um, because it, it just it's just a different space altogether for me. Yes, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. I, I um, Since moving to Ghana, I've become more of a gardener. I grew up gardening. But the idea of you planting a tree, and I planted trees five years ago, and now they're fruiting. So yeah. it's, the, it's the beauty of seeing like, oh, and I've nurtured it, you know, and yeah. I've, I've yeah. paid yeah. attention to it, and I talked to it, you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, those are definitely very good mindset, ha- mindset hacks. So let me ask you, what in your mind is, I don't want to say the future, but where do you see philanthropy in 10 years in Africa in particular? Yeah. So, you know, this is a very important question because, you know, a couple of years back, it was very difficult to even talk about philanthropy in Africa. It doesn't mean it didn't exist, but mm-hmm. we, we were not talking about it. We we're not writing about it. Um you know, it was very difficult for you to pick a magazine, pick a book and find a chapter, an article on philanthropy. There were very few local institutions that could identify themselves as philanthropic or, or, or the other. But here we are today. Philanthropy has grown in leaps and bounds in Africa. We now have infrastructure organizations right across the continent. You know, we have the Africa Philanthropy Forum, we have the Africa Philanthropy Network. We have the Independent Philanthropy Association in South Africa. We have the East Africa Philanthropy Network and other like institutions across the continent that are dedicated to building um, and promoting philanthropy in its different expressions. So that's, that's one example of what did not exist and it now exists in the past 15 or so years and is growing, right? Mm-hmm. The second is... The, the growth of local philanthropic institutions mm-hmm. uh, has also been phenomenal over the last couple of years. So we now have community foundations right across the continent. We have family foundations. We have operating foundations. We have corporate foundations. We have initiatives like volunteerism, uh, corporate social investments, and all sorts of you know um, forms of giving that probably uh, used to happen, but they were not given prominence and visibility. Mm-hmm. Now, now they're happening. They are, they are everywhere. We have, we, have, we have conferences, we have dialogues, we have webinars, left, right, and center on philanthropy in Africa and African philanthropy. Uh, and that is going to even grow and grow and grow. You have centers like, like ours now that are dedicated to teaching philanthropy, researching philanthropy, and uh, you know, promoting the practice of philanthropy in bridging the gap between practice and policy and theory. That did not exist. In government now, you have governments that have established philanthropic units, right? Uh, some of them have even gone as far as, as writing strategies on philanthropy. The government of Rwanda is a, is a strategy on philanthropy, which, uh, which I, I happen to, to write for the government. 
right? Mm. Uh, so there's a philanthropy on a, a strategy in the government of Rwanda. You, look, you go to Liberia, there's a secretariat, a philanthropy secretariat, right? That is in the Ministry of Planning. You go to uh, South Africa, the, the Department of, of, of Science and Technology and Treasury, are the departments that are dealing directly with different forms and types of philanthropy. You know, you go to Kenya, Ghana, Zambia, you, you, you find SDG philanthropy platforms, right? Uh, so, 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 so the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we did not have all these new and different uh, typologies and different developments. From a policy point of view, again, like I'm saying, different governments are beginning to think differently and to put in place some policies on philanthropy. Uh, philanthropy for the first time, in 2015 and 2014 and 2015 was involved in the formulation of SDGs for the first time. You know, I, I, I also had an opportunity to make a presentation at the adoption of the SDGs at the UN General Assembly on philanthropy. Um, and, I, and I don't think that had been done before. So, so, so there has been uh, growth, there has been visibility, and I think the future of philanthropy in the continent is even much, much, much brighter given the many challenges that we are, we are facing. ODA, the Overseas Development Assistance, the development aid for governments has declined. Uh, in, it has declined in massive, massive ways. And that has left governments with no choice but to compete with civil society for philanthropic resources, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a major, major uh, development in the continent. So philanthropy, is, is, is going to, to play a huge role when it comes to issues of development, but also complementing uh, the functions that governments are doing in our different countries, right? The second is that uh, the growth of high net worth individuals in the continent is, is something that we should all be paying attention to. I'm not sure if you're familiar, uh, a couple of years, I think two or so years ago, Oxfam published a report that showed that there are three wealth. There are three wealthy individuals in the continent, whose wealth is equivalent to fifty percent of the population. Yeah, the African population. So we're talking about, you know, more than six hundred and fifty million people's wealth is equivalent to just three people's wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the picture of high net worth individuals is actually growing because these are billionaires. The theory I'm talking about. You you also have multimillionaires. You've got, uh, you know. Uh, high net worth individuals, people whose uh, whose net assets is one mil is one million dollars and above, and and those, if 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 they really uh, focus their philanthropy to to address social justice issues or or to address you know systemic and uh, issues of structure, they are likely to change the narrative of the continent. So there's a there are high hopes really on high net worth individuals. I mean, the recent research by Bridgespan showed that. During, during the period of uh, March 2020 and December 2020, uh, high net worth individuals gave more than they've done in the past 10 years. Wow. Uh, they, they gave about more than 265 million US dollars, and they've never given that amount of money in 10 years. And they did that between March 2020 and December 2020. But that's because of COVID and COVID affected everyone, Yeah, right? It's a humanitarian crisis. But why can't we do the same even for other causes that have always been around like inequality, uh, gender-based violence, uh, mm -hmm. among others? Mm -hmm. would, would we be here if, if high net worth individuals were giving 
at the rate at which they did last year. We definitely wouldn't be here. So this is a definite call for them to even do much, much better in terms of addressing issues of structure, issues of uh, systems, uh, and issues of social justice, right? So there are key areas that philanthropy will have to focus on as we go forward. One of them is really addressing the scale of inequality. The second is addressing the issue of uh, climate change. If we think that COVID-19 is uh, destructive, we have not seen the, the worst when it comes to climate change. Yes. We are beginning to see examples in, in, in different parts of the continent. So philanthropy will have to be innovative and begin addressing issues around climate change, adaptation, mitigation, among others. But there's also you know, issues that are always available, issues of gender-based violence, inclusion, uh, issues of uh, discrimination, among others. Um, and those will also need the philanthropy to continue supporting. And so we shouldn't really be, uh, be hung up and stuck on the COVID uh, pandemic because right. the problems that we are currently dealing with was just exacerbated by COVID. Yeah. And COVID will at some point be addressed and solved, but we will still have these systemic challenges with us. Okay. And so philanthropy must not be fooled by COVID and just shift all the resources to COVID, which is what they, most of them have, have, have done over the last couple of years, Yeah. Uh, from last year and this year. Yeah. They, these problems are still going to affect us. And so African philanthropy by its nature is very, very much uh, a, a collective approach. It's values-based, but it's also uh, a philanthropy that uh, has relevance to communities where uh, it is located. And so we're expecting solutions to come from where the problems are. And that's basically what African philanthropy should do. It should solve local problems from the perspective of the communities that are affected. Okay. So, so in the coming years, we expect just more homegrown local problem solving and solutionscaping? Definitely. It's already happening. Uh, I think that we just need to shine a spotlight on that. I mean, if you look at Ebola, you look at earthquakes, you look at the you look at the COVID pandemic, who are the first people to respond? It's not international philanthropy. It's not big philanthropy. It's communities. It's local solutions. So, So that's where you know, the solutions are, that's where, you know, innovation takes place. Mm-hmm. And any technology that does not take into account that uh, is not going to be relevant for communities right, at right. all. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before I let you go, I can tell that you're an avid reader. And so in your not so academic time, what are some of your favorite titles that you read or have come across over the years? Uh, I read, I read uh, a lot, but uh, I think, you know, there are some classics, of course, that uh, one will always go back to. I mentioned, uh, I mentioned Titi Tankarembwa's uh, Nervous mm-hmm. Conditions. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic text for me. Uh, it's always relevant uh, to the work that I do because it's written from the perspective of, uh, of, a, of somebody who is disempowered. Uh, trying to describe, you know, social conditions, but it, it it speaks to the kind of work that I do in terms of understanding African philanthropy. But you know, somebody could also speak it from the perspective of uh, gender mm-hmm. studies and, and mm-hmm. understand it mm-hmm. very very well. Uh, so that's one text that I I always mm-hmm. go back to. Um, I've also you know read uh, um, you know beautiful ones mm-hmm. not yet born, mm-hmm. uh, you know by mm-hmm. Aikwe Ama. 
I love, 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 love writings by Aikwe Ama. And so I had the I had the advantage of actually spending some time with him in, in Senegal in Popengini. Oh nice. And so so not only do I you know just like his writings, but I've had time to walk with him along the the beach, just discussing, you know, the work that he does. And so beautiful, beautiful human oh, wow. being. So yeah, I I, I love his writings, of course. And then, you know, Chinua Achebe, growing up, I mean, there's no way you would avoid reading yeah. Chinua Achebe and Kuki yeah. Um Yeah, and then, of course, you know, you said you're Canaan. So there's uh, Anton Apia. I don't know if you if you know of uh-huh. Anton Apia, uh, my father's house, mm-hmm. um, another classic text uh, mm-hmm. for me. And because I also studied philosophy, I... I I, 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 I like writings by uh, Pauline Utonji, oh. um, Biki, uh, among others. You will notice that I have not mentioned any No, exactly. Yet. I'm just looking at all the books <laughs> in your room. So I'm like, I know that there's a section that is not work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm just telling you about things that I just like reading. Yeah. And there's another, there's another text that I read and I, I don't remember the, the author, but, uh, it's just one of those fiction, but fascinating uh, writing by a Nigerian uh, lady. It's called "You Did Not Come to Me by Chance." It's a write up about these these scams and you know four one nine or whatever. But the way it is written, I mean, I I couldn't put it down. I read it from page to page without stopping. So and of and of then of course. Uh, Mama Ngozi, I've read every book that she has written. Uh, so, so yeah, I, w- I can go on and on about my my book. So, but let me stop Okay, here. no, those are great ones. So, the that title was um, "I Did Not Come to You by Chance" by Adobe Trisha Nawubani. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, yeah. those are good ones. We have a nice set of um, books for the show notes for our listeners to listen to. I'm sure you're familiar with Ghana Must Go, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I love to read as well. So I'm a, and I'm always looking for new titles as well. So this is a new one that I'll pick up as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. So before I let you go, do you have any last words for our listeners to share? No, I think, you know, thanks for the opportunity to just talk about myself, the work that I do with yeah. my colleagues. I would it would be very wrong of me to end this without uh sending shout outs to my colleagues at the center okay. uh, who really make this work uh, visible. And I think that uh, uh, without the colleagues, without the school, without the supporters that uh, fund our work, it would be very difficult to even have our voices ahead. Mm. So I just want to send a shout out to everyone that has been involved in the journey that we've been embarking on. And yeah, so we're still looking forward to doing more uh, and promoting our ways of living and our philanthropy in the continent and beyond, basically. Yeah, and we look forward to we look forward to seeing it. So thank you for that, and I look forward to more discussions, more information, reading your journals. Um, keep up the good work; we really appreciate thank it. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. So, listeners, this has been another episode of Global Citizens. You can catch us with a new episode each and every Tuesday at www.globalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcast. Give us a shout, give us a like, share, subscribe. It helps people find the podcast. So until next time, 
Bye for now.